Can we care for our soul? Are there angels? Do we really have an ageless body and a timeless mind? What is enlightenment? Is it possible? What happens to an enlightened person when they die? Is being gratefully dead a worthy spiritual goal? <laughs> When the Buddha was asked questions like these, he refused to answer them. But instead he told the story. He said, suppose that companions out hunting, one of them is shot by an arrow, and his friends, taking him to the nearest doctor to be treated, if that person said to the doctor, before I'll let you treat me, I need to know how old the person was who shot the arrow. I need to know what kind of bird feathers were on the arrow and what the point was made from. And I want to know how, uh, what clan and city this person was from before I'll let you treat me. And the Buddha said that uh, before such questions could be answered, that person would get sick and die. And so too with us. Asking the questions that I started this talk with, we would we can search the ans- for the answers for the rest of our life and we won't find them. And during that time we'll suffer and we'll grow old, we'll get sick and we'll die. And we will have missed the opportunity to hear, practice and realize what the Buddha taught. And the Buddha refused to answer these kinds of questions speculating on these kind of issues because, he said, it's unbeneficial. It doesn't belong to the fundamentals of the whole life. It doesn't lead to disenchantment. It doesn't lead to dispassion. It doesn't lead to cessation. It doesn't lead to peace. It doesn't lead to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, nor to nirvana. He then went on to say, I teach dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, and the path to develop, to realize the end of dukkha. So when the Buddha taught dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, and the path to develop, to realize the end of dukkha, these are the Four Noble Truths. Now, as the teachings of the Buddha spread from India, where he lived, to Tibet, China, the the far east of Asia, Korea, Japan, down across the peninsula of Thailand, Burma, Indonesia. As the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma, spread to these other lands, initially by uh, mendicants traveling with merchants, the teachings of the Buddha met with the prevailing religion or spiritual life of the communities in that place, whether it was the Bon religion in, on the Tibetan plateau or Confucianism in China or other uh, animist 
religions in Southeast Asia. The teachings of the Buddha would mate, mix, merge, and there would become a unique um, uh, articulation of the Buddha's teachings. And each location had their own uh, rituals and integration of their culture with the teachings of the Buddha. So you have, in Tibetan Buddhism, you have the teachings of Tantra. In China, you have the teachings of Chan. In Japan, you have the teachings of Zen. In Southeast Asia, you have the teachings of Jhana. All of these words come from the same meaning. Chan, Tantra, Zen, and Jhana. So you can see the influence is similar. And yet, the practices, the appearances, the rituals are different in every culture. We had an interesting display of this when Deepama, Deepama is the Indian woman who was such a notable uh, yogini uh, in this tradition and just had extraordinary concentration and extraordinary insight in a very short time of practice. <clears throat> and she came to America at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts a few times. And one time she was there and her daughter came to translate. And there was a visiting teacher had come to speak at the three-month course. And I don't know if it was Sangsanim, the Zen master, or it was someone. Well, she didn't know who it was. But as she was listening to this other teacher speak, and it be translated to her, midway through the talk she says, they're a Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> because what they were saying was in harmony, in alignment with what she understood, even though they weren't teaching or weren't speaking of Theravada Buddhism, they were teaching of the teaching, they were sharing the teachings of the Buddha, which she understood. So the Four Noble Truths is the foundation of all of these traditions of the Dharma. And we could say that the Four Noble Truths are the... Um, undiluted uh, bedrock upon which all the other teachings, practices, traditions, etc. are built. And they all claim the Four Noble Truths as their, the source of their uh, teachings. So for us, when we <clears throat> awaken to the possibility of a spiritual life, Luckily for me, 45 years ago, it was easy. There wasn't much available as far as Dharma um, books or teachers. And I just took the only thing that was happening. But if you were to have an interest in Buddhist teachings now, and you go online to Amazon and you start looking, or if you go down to Powell's Bookstore in Portland and you start looking for Buddhist teachings, you would be totally overwhelmed with the possibilities, and it'd be quite hard to even know where to begin. There's just so much available, and you might have a hard time finding the Four Noble Truths. So, when we hear the Four Noble Truths, we should understand that this is the bedrock of the Buddhist teachings in every tradition, 
and even, even if they have different practices, different clothing, different rituals, we all believe or practice and realize the same understandings. So it is important that we, even though you may be just here to practice mindfulness for stress management or some other uh, useful uh, application of mindfulness, it's important that you hear uh, these teachings of the Buddha so that you can have a sense of maybe you aspire to, maybe not, but you can have a sense of the potential benefit of hearing these teachings and practicing mindfulness. So tonight I'm going to speak about the Four Noble Truths. The First Noble Truth is called Dukkha Satcha. D-U-K-K-H-A S-A-C-C-A Satcha means truth. Dukkha means Dukkha. Dukkha is not a word easily translated into English. It takes a whole talk to actually begin to explicate the word Dukkha. When I first heard the Four Noble Truths talk, my first accidental retreat that I told you about the other night, uh, I think it was translated as, and it often was in those days, life is suffering. I was 25. I was energetic. I was living the good life as I understood it. I wasn't suffering. I didn't get it. I mean, I it didn't, as I mentioned if I could have, could have acknowledged that I was suffering, I would have felt that I was a failure. And that was not within my uh, range of... I wasn't open to that. <clears throat> but ten years later, when I went to Burma and I was practicing with Sayadaw Bandita, all of the teachings were offered in Burmese and translated into English. And one of Sayadaw's translators translated the word dukkha as the oppressive nature of phenomena. The oppressive nature of phenomena. <coughs> huh. Somehow I could get that. You know, whether it was being hot or hungry or whatever, it was just, oh, that was gentle enough for me to begin to open to the truth of dukkha. And gradually, with practice and with some reflection and more, uh, understanding, I could open to a fuller understanding of dukkha. <clears throat> and what I realized is that it's hard to hear the teachings of dukkha as the Buddha pointed them out because when we hear that there is suffering in life, we think it's my suffering. We think, oh yeah, I got my suffering, but I'm working on it. I'll, I'll, I'll fix it up pretty soon and you know, I'll get my, uh, I'll get it together, and then I won't have dukkha. Or we think, yeah, well, I, I have dukkha, you know, I suffer, but, you know, those people who have this kind of career, this kind of <clears throat> live in this neighborhood, or have this kind of wealth or whatever, they don't have dukkha, they have... And we, because we personalize dukkha to me and my conditions and my dukkha, we miss the universality of what the Buddha is saying. All beings experience dukkha. So let me explain dukkha a little bit so you can begin to understand for yourself. 
the first, uh, maybe most obvious meaning of the word dukkha is pain. And we experience pain. We experience physical pain with having a body. You know, just try to sit still for a half hour. Pain. And uh, we we all experience that. We experience the pain of growing up. We experience the pain of slamming our finger in the door. We experience the pain of a splinter. We experience the pain of being sick. We experience the pain, some of us now, of growing older. And, <laughs> and it's obvious, isn't it? And there isn't any of us that hasn't experienced a lot of physical pain. Okay. We also experience obvious uh, mental pain or emotional pain. We all feel alone. We feel alienated. We feel left out. We feel fear. We feel ashamed at times. We feel uh, put upon. We feel discriminated against. We feel betrayed. We feel frustration, disappointment, anger, depressed. Uh, We can't get what we want. We have to put up with what we don't want. We have to be with people we don't like and we can't be with the people we love. This happens to all of us. There isn't any of us that have that has escaped that. And so, in this sense, we could say, this is the obvious physical and mental pain, the unpleasantness of pain. And it's so obvious, we call this dukkha dukkha. <laughs> dukkha dukkha. <laughs> Okay, there's another meaning to the word dukkha that's important to also grok. And that is, and it refers to the fact that things change. So, right now, we may be enjoying pleasant conditions. Good enough health to be here. Good enough wealth to be able to afford the time to be here. Uh, We have an education and knowledge we can understand. You know, our hearing is still good enough with assistance and our eyes are good enough and we can navigate and so we're here and uh, we can can have this opportunity. But it could change. Enjoying pleasant conditions is not dukkha-dukkha, it's not painful. But it's not secure either. Now we know how quickly the conditions of life can change. Any one of us could return home from the retreat, find something in our mailbox that changes our life hereafter. You get a diagnosis from the doctor, you get a financial statement from your investments, you read the news about anything else, and, you know, things change. Conditions change. And our fortunes and what we rely on for our happiness, our family, our friends, our finances, our jobs, our the accumulation of stuff is all vulnerable to change. Now, you remember the, uh, I think it was about four years ago on the north, northern coast of Japan, the community of people living where the earthquake happened? They were living their life like we're living our life. They had their homes, their careers, their families, their neighborhoods, their whole uh, accumulation of material wealth 
and their position in society in this nice farming and fishing village on the northern coast of Japan and the earth goes and the water goes and everything they had is gone and not only that but the nearby power generating system it's flooded and it spews out stuff so they can't live there for the next couple hundred years that's it your whole life totally upended and it's not like you can kind of get it back if you work hard it's like it's gone and as much as they had done everything reasonable to establish their life secure safe to live in harmony with one another and to be healthy and to to live out their life with some reliance on each other and uh, the forces of society was gone just like that we are living just like that and there is a tsunami headed towards us we don't know when it's going to land we don't know what kind of tsunami it's going to be but you can be sure that there are unexpected events in each one of our life that's going to happen and it's going to rattle our cage it's going to wipe out our security it's going to threaten our security and the happiness that we have come to enjoy based on that accumulation of assets physical mental emotional political economic and otherwise it could be a medical tsunami it could be a financial tsunami it could be a political tsunami it could be anything and we know that somewhere just on the periphery of our vision we know that we live with this insecurity and as much as we try to get our life together we still know that anything and everything could change in an instant and we don't turn to look at it because what can we do i mean really you look at it and it just scares you to death and you just go i i i wouldn't know what to do i can't i can't plan for that we can't plan for that in one sense we can't we can't ensure we can't inoculate ourselves to the insecurity of this ever present possibility of catastrophic change and so we live with it and it's just here on the periphery and we're forever just trying to keep it out of sight or just don't look that way or just keep one step ahead of it something and again we often miss the universality of this teachings of the buddha because we think well it's just my insecurity i haven't got enough money in my retirement account and i haven't got quite the new car i want and my kids aren't quite as established in the good adult life that i would like them to have and you know and we think well as soon as i get it together as soon as i finish this and do that and help them and do you know then i'll be secure not possible it's not possible and so we are we might say we're condemned to live with this insecurity we're not condemned it's just like this is a fact i call this an adult fact of life mm-hmm. you know and it takes real adult qualities of heart to be able to 
accept it, to acknowledge it, and to to do what we can, and to acknowledge what we what we can't. So this, we would say, is not painful, in the sense of having the abundance and having the pleasure of economic and you know security. That's not dukkha dukkha, but because it changes unannounced, we have to say that dukkha is hidden in pleasant experiences. Dukkha is hidden. It takes penetrating insight to see that pleasant conditions are unstable and therefore dukkha. Okay. There's a third meaning of the word dukkha that is also important to hear. And it has two flavors. There's the macro flavor and the micro flavor. And the macro flavor is we're born. And our parents and other primary caregivers doing the best they can have to take care of us. And so they feed us and they bathe us and they clothe us and they cuddle us and they educate us, and they entertain us, and they take us to the toilet. Well, they don't take us to the toilet, they just clean up after us. You know, they just, we just kind of do what's got to be done, and they got to do what's got to be done. And they have to do this 24-7, because if they don't do that, we're not going to be happy. And if we're not happy, they're not going to be happy. <laughs> okay. So we have to do this. And then, as soon as they can, they enlist the help of aunts and uncles and peers and friends and neighbors and anybody else to help train this little bundle of joy into kind of taking care of them so that they can grow up and do it on their own. And we get that message. You know, somewhere in our early teenage years, probably, we get the message that, okay, you know, I'm here to help, but you got to do it yourself. You've got to take care of yourself. Now, you have to take care of your body, and you have to take care of your mind. So, to take care of this body, we have to eat every day. And to be able to eat every day, as you get older, you have to have food. And to get food, you have to have money. And to get money, you've got to have a job. And to get a good job, to get the food you're going to need, you've got to go to school for 14, 16, 18 years. There's some dukkha. okay so then you get your job did I lead you down this one yet we go in the grocery store at the end of the day's work you gotta go in the grocery store because you can get the groceries for food for dinner you go in you park your car you get your little cart you run up and down the aisles you're picking things off the shelf off the freezer da 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 you put it all in the cart you go to the checkout there's already six people in the shortest line and you wait patiently just anxious to get home from work and then finally you check out and you know it used to be that you could get a hundred dollars worth and it took about four bags now you can one bag hundred dollars okay so you've got to deal with that so you finally get everything out of the, out of the cart, take it out to the car, open the car, put it in the car, take the car back, get in the car, drive home through stop and go, traffic jam, commuter traffic. Okay, you get home, you drive into the yard, 
You take everything out of the car, bring it into the kitchen, take it all out of the bags, put it into the cupboard, into the refrigerator, into the freezer, the oven, you know. You take it, you fold up all the bags for recycling, you take out all of this, you save the receipt just in case you've got to return anything. <laughs> okay? You put everything in its place, you know, finally, whew, got the deck cleared, fix yourself a drink, go in the living room and sit down. Okay. Okay. You know, sip your drink, half hour later, gotta make dinner. You get up, you come back into the kitchen, you get everything out of, get everything out of the cupboard, out of the refrigerator, out of the freezer. You open everything up, you throw everything in the way into the recycling, into the garbage, into the compost, you gotta get everything in the right place, and the bottles go over here. Okay, no caps with the bottles, okay. <laughs> okay. And then you, you know, you spend 45 minutes kind of chopping, dicing, Scrambling, you know, sautéing, boiling, chopping, you know, turning on, turning off, getting out the plate, setting up the, setting up the dinner, setting up the table, getting out all the silverware and napkins, light the candles, you know, get everything ready to serve, and and, and in, in a bowl's on the table, and you invite everybody in the house to come sit down. They sit down, they help themselves what to eat. Ten minutes later, it's all gone. And you, clean up the <laughs> you clean up the table, you take it all back out of the kitchen, and clean it all up. Yeah, scraping all the stuff in the compost and put it in there. Is anybody not doing it? You're not following me? <laughs> put the dish in the dishwasher, start the machine. Get to bed, get some rest so you can do it again tomorrow. So that's just taking care of the food. Every day when you get up in the morning, you've got to groom yourself. You got to take a shower. You got to do your hair. You got to do your teeth. Got to do your <laughs> everything else. And you go to the closet. And you pick out your best clothes for that day's particular social engagements. And you stand in front of the mirror again, just to make sure that you're still who you are. And you know, put on whatever you got to put on. And you got to take care of this body by bathing, doing your teeth, uh, grooming putting on nice clothes, keeping them clean, washing. Laundry. How many hours, how many months have we spent doing our laundry? Okay, never mind. Uh, and you have to take care of this. And you have to do this every day. Just imagine, you say, I don't want to do this. And you just decide not to brush your teeth. Okay, don't brush your teeth for a couple of months. There's some dukkha. Okay, you have to do this. And this is just taking care of the body. And the body is the easy part. Because you have to keep moving, you know, because as soon as you sit still, well, we know what it's like if you just sit still and don't move the body. So you've got to keep moving, and you've got to keep it healthy, because if you don't keep it healthy, you're going to get, like, collapse. Anyway, so <clears throat> that's the body. Then the mind. You have this mind you have to take care of. Now, you know you have to keep this mind entertained, distracted. Um, it's got to be curious. You've got to feed it with... You know, things to see, things to do, things to hear, sensual pleasures of one sort or another, and it's got to look forward to a future that's brighter than it is now, and you've got to take care of this mind and keep it really entertained, distracted, because if you don't, it's just like being on a retreat your whole life. <laughs> There's some food. So now you've got to take care of this body and this mind every day. Every day. For... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, decades. <laughs> Every day, 24-7. Seven, eight decades. At the end of which, what happens? Your friends. 
go to your closet, pick out the best clothes you have. <laughs> Maybe the price tag is still on. They give them to this guy who puts them on you and puts you in a box. And you get one last glance from your friends, and they say, yep, that's them. They're looking good. And then the box closes, and it goes in the ground, or it goes in the fire. That's it. Some would say, that was a bad investment. (laughs) Because it took our whole life investing in this thing. It just goes in a hole in the ground. But let me just say, if all we're doing is carrying this body and mind as comfortably as possible to the grave, we are wasting our time. Because there's so much more we can do with this life, such as what we're doing now. Awakening to what this life is really all about, and to the extent that we understand our own suffering, we can understand other suffering, to the extent that we know how to cure or how to relieve our own suffering, we can help others. And if we can find a purpose in life that helps others carry the burden of their dukkha, you're making good use of your time. That's the macro view. That's dukkha. This is sankara dukkha, existential dukkha. The micro view is we have six sense doors. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. And they are constantly being stimulated all the time. There's never a time when you aren't feeling physical sensations. There's almost never a time when you aren't hearing, having to hear sounds or see sights. Even if your eyes are closed, you still see things that you saw before. Sometimes we're not so aware of smell and not so aware of tasting, but still, we need to keep those sense doors stimulated because we want taste, we want smells. And so we have these six senses and the mind. Can you ever shut the mind off? Cannot. I mean, it's constantly chattering away, whether you want to listen or not, it's chattering. And we are constantly barraged with incessant sense contact. That's why we like pleasant. You know, if you can put on a little music and hear something pleasant for a while, great. If you can get a massage and kind of lay in a water bed, great. If you can do anything that kind of brings a little pleasantness to this constant stimulation, we'll take it. And yet, at the end of the pleasant, things change. And you can't get away from it. It's oppressive. It's oppressive. It's just incessant. You know, it's hard to open to this truth, even as I talk about it, not even as you experience it, but even as I talk about it, it's hard to take it in. We kind of want to laugh it off and say, eh. You know, but it kind of hooks in there and we go, yeah, it is kind of like that. But once we open to it, the question is, what can we do about it? It's like, this is it. You know, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I'm just trying to show, trying to show you a mirror of what you're looking at. So this oppressiveness, this pain, this insecurity, it's unsatisfactory. And there's no way away, there's no way around the truth that it's just unsatisfactory. So we could say the first noble truth is the truth of unsatisfactoriness. Mm-hmm. Again, 
We often miss it. We think, yeah, well, it's just me. I haven't got my act together. I haven't got, you know, my security. I haven't got whatever. And yet everybody experiences this kind of dukkha. Whether you're royalty or a beggar on the street, whether you're male or female, young or old, whether you're one of us entitled, white, middle-class, educated guys in the West, or your son living in some third-world country, whether it's dead, it doesn't matter. We all have this condition. We all live with this condition all the time. Okay. Practice, the practice of the Dharma, is to investigate the First Noble Truth. Because while it is so obvious when we hear it, it's so easy to avoid. And our whole life is sometimes, can be seen as one whole distraction from recognizing and doing something about our life in terms of this First Noble Truth. So practice is to investigate. And you can see how difficult it is to actually pay close enough attention to your body, to the mind, to your heart, and open to the pain or the insecurity or the oppressive nature of it. Mostly we want to be comfortable. We want to find the joy. We want to find the love. We want to find the pleasantness in the body. We're always you know, agitating to find a more comfortable posture, even. Just that. And to just acknowledge, you know what, it's not comfortable being in this body. It's just not. And this mind, you can't keep it, you cannot keep it entertained and distracted so it's happy. You just can't. And, and so as we investigate this condition of body and mind, this is what we see. Our usual and conditioned strategies for dealing with dukkha fail. They don't work. That's sobering. Because now we're left with, well, what can we do about it? Well, the Buddha was interested to understand why we have to experience this dukkha. And so in his continued insight and looking at this, he discovered the cause of dukkha. Now, I just want to say, I had a hard time opening to the truth of Dukkha when I first heard the Dharma. But gradually over the years, I kind of got it a little more, a little better. I am so thankful. I am so grateful for Dharma teachers who shared the truth of Dukkha. As if they brought Dukkha out of the closet and just said, here's a mirror, look. Because it takes, you know, if I had to package the Dharma into sound bites to sell you the Dharma, nobody would buy this package on Dukkha. <laughs> we want the package on mindfulness for stress management. We want the package on awakening joy. We want the package on loving kindness. And how about this little package of Dukkha? <laughs> we don't want that. You can't sell Dukkha. That's why we offer it freely. <laughs> Now, why do we suffer? Why do we experience this dukkha? The Buddha looked and he 
saw through the clarity of his vision that it's because of craving. Craving, clinging, desire, attachment, being identified with, yearning, all those that are <coughs> in the same field. Now, I mentioned this earlier, I think, in a response to a question, or one of the question answer sessions, maybe today. This assumption that I grew up with, and it still almost seems true, that if I could only get what I want, then I should be happy. Well, I have gotten what I want. I got an education, I got a new car, I got a house, I got a responsible position, I have a nice career, I have, I have, I have, I got, you know, we worked for years to get these things and we never finish. Has anyone ever gotten everything they need and now they're totally content and not looking for anything else? No. We just keep, the desire is still there. We've satisfied one desire and it just moves to another thing, another thing, and another thing. And there's no satisfying of desire. Even if you had everything, you still would want something more. Okay. If what you want, you get. Momentary happiness. That is the one thing the Buddha identified as not dukkha. That moment of relief from the satisfaction of desire. But it's brief. Of course we know if you don't get what you want, that's dukkha. If you do get what you want, well, why is that dukkha? Why would that be dukkha? Well, think of it this way. If what you want and what you get is a living thing, whether it's a being or a plant or a dog or whatever, it is subject to aging, sickness and death, and it has something of a mind of its own. <laughs> Maybe the most dukkha. Okay? If what you want and get is valuable, well, then you have to insure it. Uh, the government may try to confiscate it. Uh, you have to be careful it doesn't get stolen. If what you want and get is digital, it'll be outdated in six months. <laughs> if, if if it's made out of metal, it's going to rust or corrode. If it's made out of wood, there's other uh, damaging forces. What you get, even though it's new and satisfies briefly, it doesn't last. You get a new car and somebody keys it in the parking lot. <laughs> How long does it take before... You finally give up the newness of a new car. Doesn't take long. Okay. So we're left with this, well, kind of trembling insecurity that what we have acquired, that we wanted, and that we've acquired for our happiness and security, it can die, it can get stolen, it can get lost, it can wear out, it can, you know. Okay. I remember watching the Olympics one time. And, you know, these Olympians, they, they train for years to do the best they can and hopefully get a medal. And it was in the weightlifting competition. And, you know, going through and they're in the final round and the last two people that were doing, the next to the last one lifted some ungodly weight that he'd never lifted before and was sure. And at that point, 
had lifted the most, and he was the winner. So he was just so he was just so ecstatic. He was just you know how they get. And there was this last person that, to do his weights, and obviously he wasn't going to do as well, except <laughs> he did. And this next to the last person, his his world championshipness lasted about three minutes. <laughs> and somebody just superseded it. So it's like it's like that. Whatever we seek, it just there's no there's no insurance that it's going to provide the satisfaction that we imagine. Okay. So the Buddha said, we seek, of course, pleasant experiences. We like pleasant experiences. Pleasant physical, mental, emotional, psychological, erotic, financial, everything. We, we like pleasant. When we get unpleasant, okay. So, we also, the Buddha said, will seek or crave what he called continued existence. Now, let's not get too esoteric here. Uh, did you have planning mind today? Did you have planning mind today? <laughs> what is planning mind? Planning mind is imagining paradise elsewhere. <laughs> right? It's laying down a track in your mind for a future that's better than it is now. This is called continu- craving continued existence. And as I mentioned earlier, if we had to live out all the futures we have imagined mm-hmm. for ourselves, we it would take hundreds of human lifetimes, during which we would be imagining additional <laughs> futures that we'd like to live on. This is called samsara, looking for happiness in the future, in all the wrong places. And we just have, well, the Buddha said, we have been doing this for hundreds of lifetimes, and here we are, doing it again. Just looking for happiness, whether it's in, you know, heaven realms or hell realms or animal realms or human realms or whatever whatever it is whatever we imagine is going to offer it to us we've done it we've been there done that and we're still doing it mm. so the Buddha said well we also crave uh, what did he say to the end of existence what how's that did you have excruciating pain sometime today right that, who was that self that was experiencing that excruciating pain wouldn't you like that self to be over with? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not going to do anything that dangerous, but we want it all to end, too. Sometimes we just open to the dukkha of the moment, and it's like, we'll do anything to get it to end. Is there an explanation there for the opioid addictive problem we have, for the use of alcohol to the point of numbness, the self-medicating, the... It, Why? To end our suffering. The Buddha was on. He he had his act together. Okay. We crave continued existence, the end of existence. While the first noble truth is to be investigated, the second noble truth is to be abandoned. Craving is to be abandoned. Now, recent studies have shown that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it should if we get it. And what we fear or imagine will make us unhappy doesn't make us as unhappy as we imagine. And when they studied winners of the lottery and those who experienced catastrophic illness or calamity, 
What they found is that their baseline happiness was the same a year after they won the lottery as the day before. And it was their baseline happiness was the same after the diagnosis of a catastrophic illness a year after than it was the day before. Proving or concluding, we have to conclude, is that we really don't know what will make us happy and our, happy, our idea of happiness is independent of conditions and happiness is not dependent on external conditions at all but more so on the quality of our mind, our attitude towards what we have. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So now we have the two, the first, or we could say, the two noble truths of the Buddha. The truth of dukkha, caused by craving. Good luck. <laughs> what? If there was no third and fourth noble truth, what would you do? I mean, it's like you're caught in, you're caught in dukkha and you're craving for more. But luckily for us, the Buddha had two more. So, the third noble truth the Buddha discovered is that it is possible to let go, end craving, and therefore end dukkha. Huh. Now, usually or often when you hear talk of the third noble truth, there's talk of, you know, this enlightenment or liberation or freedom or something that seems and is, maybe, I guess, who knows, far away, long, far into the future somewhere. Or maybe it's only for those kind of people that lived during the time of the Buddha, or only for monks and nuns, or somebody who's living in a cave for 20 or 30 years or something. But what's it got to do with me here? Well, that's what I want to talk about. How we are experiencing, or, you know, if, with this practice here, we experience the third noble truth, which is the end of dukkha, the end of uh, craving. Okay. So there's a few ways that we do that. The first is by you know, noticing our wandering mind. When we notice our wandering mind, it's usually caught in some narrative of fantasies or suffering or, you know, recalling some painful memory or trying to solve some problem or figure something out. And we're just off in la-la land. And when we kind of come to, well, we let go. It disappears. We let go of that holding on to this problem, holding on to this idea, holding on to this fantasy, holding on to this judgment, holding on to this memory, and waking up or, or recognizing mindfulness, whoop, lets it go. Well, when I first started practice, it was a few years after I got out of the university. While I was at the university, I studied engineering. And it was back in the days before we had handheld calculators and everything was done by longhand math. So I took a lot of advanced math courses and it was doing it all on a slide rule and in your head. So my mind was really good at doing complex mathematical formulas just by thinking. Great. So I go to a retreat, you know, and when my mind wandered away, it wandered into 
Well, mathematical calculation. <laughs> Let's see, the room is uh, 25 feet wide, yeah. 60 feet long, it's just tall in this thing. You know, 42 feet, you know, to see. How many cubic feet there is here? Honest, I would find my mind off wandering, try, trying to figure out these. And I would notice, do I have to be doing this right now? <laughs> and what was going on is my mind was holding on to a habit. It was a habit to do mathematical things. So it was just like anything I could... And I still find myself counting everything. It's like counting how many steps, how many this, that. It's just... Unless we pay attention to notice what our mind is doing, it will keep doing it. But if we notice it, we'll gradually break that habit. We'll weaken that habit to where we don't get caught in it so much or we catch it quicker. That's one way. We just notice the habits of mind that take us away from the present moment. And we could say that in the moment that you recognize what what the mind is doing and you let go, there is a momentary dukkha-free zone. Because you're not holding on and it's just you've just let go. And you haven't picked up anything else yet. Dukkha Frieza. A second way that we see the end of Dukkha comes with the a little bit of the momentum of mindfulness. Now, uh, the other night I spoke about all the torments that arise in the mind. Now, when we are caught in a torment, when we're identified with our anger, with, you know, desire or frustration, when we're caught in it, we're suffering. When we're able to recognize it with mindfulness, we step, it's as if we step out of it and we can be aware of it. That's the end of that dukkha. You may be observing it, but you're not it. You're not caught in it. And just that is a moment of Letting go. That's a moment of dukkha frisa. And as the momentum of those moments picks up, we can spend longer periods of time observing without being entangled in, being caught by, where the mind stays, let go, let go, let go, let go, observing, 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 rather than grabbing on and being caught. This is another way that we experience a kind of dukkha-free zone. Third way that we experience is through the development of what are called the seven factors of awakening. Last night I spoke about the five controlling faculties. Could be, we could talk about that. As we develop the five faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, stability of mind, samadhi, and wisdom, we grow in balance. Faith and wisdom come into balance. Energy and tranquility come into balance. And mindfulness keeps it all balanced. And when the mind is in balance, we're neither leaning towards or resisting or pulling away from anything. Whatever arises in the mind, we can be with. We can see with the mindfulness. We don't get caught in it with excitement, indulgence, and we don't back off from it with fear or uh, any kind of aversion. 
So the mind is in that balanced place of knowing, but not grasping, not clinging to anything. Letting experience come, as it will, due to its own causes and conditions, and letting it be known, and letting it go. And if we don't grab on to solidifying it, reifying it in some way, or reifying a sense of self in relation to it, then we remain free of clinging. It's not just things that we cling. We cling to ideas about ourselves. Even that is a clinging. So when mindfulness is there and we're not clinging to anything, any experience, or a sense of self, the mind remains free, dukkha-free, not clinging. Fourth way of experiencing dukkha-free moments comes when this quality of the balanced mind sees things as they are. And I spoke about this earlier too. And we begin to see not just the nature of each moment's experience, but we begin to see the universal characteristics of each moment's experience. So as I mentioned, one of them is we see the dukkha characteristic. Everything that arises is either painful or it's unstable and therefore doesn't provide security or it's oppressive. Everything. When the mind's eye opens and the wisdom sees, oh, this is the nature of every moment's experience. It has this characteristic. It's painful. I'm not going to grab that. It's unstable, changing. I'm not going to grab that. And it's oppressive. Why would I grab that? And so the mind remains ungrasping. What it sees has the characteristic of dukkha. That's an ongoing non-clinging, an ongoing uh, dukkha-free zone based on the insight into the dukkha characteristic. Okay, There still is the dukkha characteristic. We're not, we're not erasing the first noble truth. We're just not buying into it. Okay? We also see that things arise due to their own causes and conditions. They have the, what's called the anatta characteristic. Things don't have an inherent essence to them. It's like a rainbow. Of course, you never see rainbows here. But often on Maui, we see rainbows. Every day, there's rainbows. So what's a rainbow? Well, a rainbow is a colorful appearance due to specific causes and conditions that arises to be known, but it has no essence, no substance. And nobody has ever packaged a rainbow and sent it to somebody else can't do it. It There's nothing there. It's just an appearance due to causes and conditions. So when we see that each moment's experience that we have, that we we know, is but a momentary experience, a colorful momentary experience due to causes and conditions, but it has no inherent essence, no inherent substance. When you know that about each moment's experience, the mind is not going to grab it. You don't, you don't reach for a rainbow. You know, it's just an appearance. When you know the anatta characteristic, or when the anatta characteristic opens in the mind's eye, and you look at your experience, you realize this is just a colorful appearance due to causing conditions. 
I don't need to cling to it. I don't need to push it away. I don't need to do anything with it. It's not there. There's nothing of substance there. And so again, what the mind sees has the characteristic of impermanence or conditionality. It doesn't reach for, and if it doesn't reach, it doesn't cling. If it doesn't cling, there's no dukkha. We have an ongoing dukkha-free zone of experiencing life as it is with the understanding that it's all a colorful appearance. It's just a colorful show. Nothing of substance to grab onto. Dukkha-free And so too with impermanence. When we see that what has arisen in this moment has come together due to cause and conditions, and it's there but for a brief moment, and it's gone. The next thing is arisen, it's gone. Arisen, and gone. Everything that you have ever experienced is over. It doesn't last. Even the memories are fickle. <laughs> They'll never come back. I mean, the, the, what you've experienced is gone. Vipassana practice is characterized as learning how to grieve effectively. Because we see everything is gone. Just gone, gone, gone. And if we're hanging on, we're going to be grieving. We're going to be caught in grieving. We're going to be stuck in grieving. And so Vipassana practice is learning how to experience loss and grieve that loss, meaning you accept that loss. You accept this feeling. You're not resisting it. You're not holding on. You're not wishing it back. You're just saying, this is a loss. This is what it feels like. Okay? But when we do that, we aren't grasping anything. And if we're not grasping, there's no, there's no dukkha. Dukkha-free zone due to the insight into the nietzsche or impermanent characteristic of all phenomena. Okay, this is the direction our practice is going. We're doing this here. You know, we see it moment. We don't understand it this way yet. We will. We'll see. Oh, the knowledge of dukkha is different than the experience of dukkha. The knowledge, the experience of dukkha is painful. It's insecure. It's destabilizing. It's oppressive. The knowledge of dukkha is liberating. Impermanence is scary until you can live with it, and then it's liberating. To think of no self, I mean, it's no inherent self here, is scary until you realize, well, that means you can be anything in any moment. Wow, that's liberating. Okay. So this kind of liberation from insight is not the final. There's one more. When these insights are mature, and we're not reaching for or holding on to anything, we are able to let everything come, and everything go. And even the one who's knowing. We see that, oh, this awareness is not me either. It's not my mind. It's not the mind. It just appears like a rainbow in the mind. A rainbow in the sky, like awareness in the mind. No different. When we see that, it may be possible that the mind will fall into the unconditioned. And this is Nibbana. The unconditioned is, there's no conditions giving rise to it. It is the end of conditions. It is a reality. It can be realized. But the Buddha said of the, the Nibbana that it's difficult, it's hard to see, it's subtle, it's, it's, 
but it is intelligible to the wise. The end of suffering, the Buddha said, it's deep, hard to see, hard to understand. It is peaceful. It is sublime. It is beyond mere reasoning. But it is intelligible to the wise. We use words like peace, contentment, the sublime, to point to this truth. The truth of the end of suffering. It's not only for people at the time of the Buddha. It's not only for monks and nuns. It's not only for people who live in caves. It's for you. If you practice, if you investigate the first noble truth, dukkha, if you let go of the second noble truth of clinging, if you practice the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path, you will realize the third noble truth, which is the end of dukkha. Fourth Noble Truth, as I have mentioned previously, is the three trainings of sila to purify your speech and behavior of the transgressive torments, allowing you the happiness of living in harmony, or mindfulness, developing samadhi for the um, purification of the mind, purifying the mind of obsessive defilements, giving you the happiness or allowing you the happiness of secluded mind, tranquility, and insight, which is the purification of our understanding, giving you the key to the highest happiness, which is peace, divine. And why did the Buddha teach the Four Noble Truths? Because he said, it's beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. It leads to disenchantment. It leads to dispassion. It leads to cessation. It leads to peace. It leads to direct knowledge. It leads to enlightenment. The Four Noble Truths lead to Nibbana. So it's important that we hear this Four Noble Truth. Maybe you think it's way beyond your aspiration. Maybe you've never heard of it before. Maybe all you want is something else for, from your practice. That's okay. But know that liberation is also possible. As the Buddha said, the purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dharma is not for gaining merit, it's not for doing good deeds, it's not for rapture, it's not for concentration, but it's for the sure heart's release. This, and this alone, is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.